I'm Pastor Jay. It is my privilege to invite you to open God's Word to the book of Zephaniah. So I'll, here, I'm going to do an impulsive thing that I did in the first service. How many have heard a sermon on Zephaniah that were not here in the first service? Okay, I see a hand or two. I was reading this week, uh, Jay Vernon McGee, who talked about preaching this to a group of 3,000, I think, and he asked that same question, and I, he said two hands went up. Talked to a woman after the first service this morning, and she was in tears, and she talked about God speaking to her this morning through the scripture, but she said, I have never read Zephaniah. And so my assumption is a lot of us have not. I hope you do this week. I hope you are reading along each Sunday before we get to one of these, or reading after and reading the book. They're not, most of them are not that long as we go through the minor prophets. That's a nickname, as we said, given by St. Augustine. And it is not really a good description. They're minor in the sense of Hebrew word count. That's why they're called the minor versus the major prophets. It's simply word count. It has nothing to do with their significance, nothing to do with their importance. In the Hebrew Bible, they're called the 12, the last 12 books. And uh, actually, the Hebrew Bible ends in Chronicles. But in the Hebrew Bible, these are one book, and they're called the Twelve, although they are, they are distinguished by name. Zephaniah is the one we're taking up this morning. We've learned it walking through these, that one of the encouraging things is the emphasis that the Twelve put on the character of God. Specifically, three attributes of God are highlighted in the Minor Prophets, they come through again and again and again. <clears throat> God's sovereignty, God's holiness, and his love. And I say that because it is the most important knowledge imaginable to understand who God is. Uh, Jonathan Edwards in his great classic, The Freedom of the Will, said that the two most important knowledges in the universe are a knowledge of who God is and then a knowledge of who we are. Otherwise, we can't be reconciled to him. Along that line of how important knowledge of God is, I'm going to put a quote up from J.I. Packer, one of my favorite heroes, an Anglican theologian who went to be with the Lord a couple years ago in his classic Knowing God. This started as a series of articles in Britain in a magazine and then eventually became a book in 1973 and has been a classic. If you've never read Knowing God, I cannot encourage you strongly enough to get a copy of this and read it. But in the book, page 19, he says... Knowing about God is crucially important for living, living of our lives. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded. Isn't that the truth? With no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you, this way you can waste your life and lose your soul. A.W. Tozer said something similar to knowledge of the holy, that what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That is one of the reasons why the minor prophets are so incredibly valuable. This weekend, we come to the book of Zephaniah, and it is a book, again, reminding us of the true God of the Bible, specifically, both God's righteousness and his offers of mercy, both his tender love and his fierce judgments. And as such, I gave the subtitle to the sermon this morning. It is a book that tells us to seek God while there's time. So whatever your age, 
Young people especially, I hope I have your attention, kids. By the way, if you have kids and young people, I hope you're bringing them to worship. It's very important they're sitting under the preaching of God's word. I hope you bring your kids into the worship service. And I want to especially target them today, but seek God while there's time. If you're here, alive and breathing, there's time. That's the good news. His book divides into two parts, announcement of judgment and the promise of salvation. So first of all, and this is the bulk of the book is the announcement of judgment. This is not uncommon in the prophets. And yet you have regularly these reminders of his love and his mercy and his grace that are offered to those who will seek him, fear him and obey him. But first of all, announcement of judgment, this runs from chapter one, verse one, all the way through chapter three, verse eight. We already saw that in verse one, Zephaniah, unlike most of the minor prophets, goes to great length with very tight precision to date his book historically during the reign of King Josiah, who reigned from about 640 to 609 BC. So like the other prophets that do this, Zephaniah wants you to know he really existed. This is when he wrote, these were the world events going on at the time. He's not just freelancing and making stuff up. He is a real prophet who lived at a very specific moment on the world stage. The book opens when the Lord announcing judgment on two groups. So ready? The two groups. First, on his own people in Jerusalem. And secondly, on the surrounding nations. Jerusalem was in a rough neighborhood. And the surrounding nations around them, much like today, hated them and wanted to destroy them. And so God, interestingly, is announcing judgment, first of all, on his own people and the nations around them. And interestingly, the sections dealing with judgment on Jerusalem and his own people are almost twice as long as his announcement of judgment on the nations around them. And so we will see that, especially comes out in chapter one and chapter three. So first of all, judgment on Jerusalem. I'm going to read verses two to six. And I'll preface it by saying this. If you think you've read some strong language in the minor prophets, especially in books like Amos or Nahum, the language in this book is very strong. It's very fierce. In fact, one Old Testament scholar I consulted this week said from the outset, the language of judgment in Zephaniah is as horrifying as words can convey. So a little bit of a, a heads up. This is, this is strong. And, and frankly, that turns off a lot of people. That turns off people, even people that are regular church attenders who don't want to hear this. And either they'll stay in that church and just sort of mentally shut down, or they end up going off to liberal churches who don't preach the word of God anymore so they can hear a message of be nice. That's the gospel of be nice that is so prominent in our culture today. The reality of this is, friends, we are to go and hear what God has said. The evidence is overwhelming. This is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. My job is not to massage it. My job is not to get God off the hook. My job is not to try to package this for our current crazy, insane age. My job is to gently, lovingly show us, including myself, what has God said? And then how do we apply it and obey it? And so judgment on his people, verses two to six, the language is going to be strong here throughout the book. Verse two. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. 
When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth. This is language that clearly echoes early Genesis when he obliterated the planet with a worldwide flood. Which also was a real historical event. Verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests. Those who bow down on roofs to the starry host. Those who bow down and swear by the Lord and also swear by Molech. You got priests swearing by Yahweh and then a pagan deity. Talk about schizophrenia. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. All right, sobering to note up front, the announcement of judgment, again, in chapter 1 and chapter 3, against God's own people, almost twice as long as God's word against the pagan nations. Now, let me, let's put on our thinking caps a minute. Young people, kids, why would the language of judgment be almost doubled against God's own people? And here we come up against a very clear biblical principle. Jesus talked about this when he said, too much is given, much is required. And that principle is this. The more access you have to truth, the more proximity you have to the gospel and the word of God and preaching and the proclamation, the more accountable you are. And the greater will be judgment if we reject it. This is a reminder that in the Bible... There clearly are described, there are degrees of sin, degrees of judgment, and degrees of punishment. Not all sin is the same in God's eyes. That is a big myth. Secondly, not all judgment will be the same. It's not a level playing field in the afterlife. And thirdly, not all punishment will be equal in the afterlife. And so the lesson is that judgment will be most severe for those who've heard the gospel and rejected the truth. That explains why Jesus, when he was preaching in Chorazin and Capernaum and Bethsaida, three little Jewish villages called the Jewish Triangle there on the Sea of Galilee, he said of Chorazin and Bethsaida, little conservative Jewish villages with synagogues that the remnants still sit there. He said, those who heard in Chorazin and rejected him on judgment day, will be judged more harshly than the homosexuals of Sodom and Gomorrah. Access to truth will determine accountability. And that's what you see here, and that's what's going on here. That's a chilling reminder. How many sit in Bible teaching churches? You may be one of them this morning. And hear credible warnings from God's word and ignore them. And either just shut down or think, ah, he's not, it's, it's hyperbole, it's not real, it's not, what he, what, it's not what God really means. And they behave as those who lived in Colombia in 1985 around a massive volcano, Nevado del Ruz, 17,000 foot volcano that was starting to rumble in the fall of 1985. The U.S. Geological Survey was monitoring it very closely, it was a big volcano, as was a group of Italian volcanologists, not Italian Star Trek fans. That's not a few of you got that. Volcanologists, not people with pointy ears. These were Italians that studied volcanoes. And the Italian team actually put out a report. And they put the report out 38 years ago today, October 22nd, 1985. And it said this. Time is short. 
both they and the U.S. Geological Survey and other groups that are monitoring this realize this thing is about ready to blow. And if it, when it, when, and if it does, it's going to be destructive, like Mount St. Helens. And it did. And a lot of the surrounding villagers did not leave. And over 20,000 were obliterated when it blew. That's conservative estimates. That's what happens when we don't listen to what I would call multiple credible warnings. That's why listening to the prophets, listening to Jesus, nobody preached about judgment like Jesus did, is so important. This brings us to the phrase that is a hallmark of Zephaniah. It was a hallmark of Joel, and it comes up again in the major prophets and also in the New Testament. And it's the phrase, the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. It's referred to, that day is referred to directly or indirectly over 20 times in Zephaniah in just three chapters. Now, if you know anything about Bible study, one of the keys to Bible study is you look for repetitive phrases or words that help interpret a text. Because when something keeps coming up again, obviously the writer is trying to tell you something. And so the day of the Lord is a huge theme in Zephaniah and in Joel and in the prophets at large. So let's start with verse 7. And then I'm going to drop down to verses 14 to 18, where we will see again this phrase. And again, that phrase or similar phrases indirectly come up over 20 times in these three chapters. So this is a big theme in the book, the day of the Lord. Verse 7. Be silent before the sovereign Lord. For the day of the Lord. Literally, the day of Yahweh is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated those he has invited. Drop down to verse 14. The day of the Lord is near. Near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath. And a day of distress and anguish. A day of trouble and ruin. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. A day of trumpet. And battle cry against the fortified cities, against the corner towers. Verse 17. I will bring such distress on all the people that they will grope about like those who are blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord. There's the reason. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of Yahweh's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. I told you, this is some of the most fierce language there is. And it's not only found in the minor prophets. You see this also in some of the other prophets. Let me read you a couple passages. And it's interesting when you see phrase the day of the Lord. It's talking both about immediate judgment at times, but then also future judgment at times. And it applies sometimes to Israel and sometimes to the nations. So there's a complexity about the phrase day of the Lord. It's not just one thing. It is about both near and far judgment, and it's about both Israel and the nations being judged by God. But here's a couple more passages. These come from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So, Isaiah 13, 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Jeremiah 46, 10. For the day of the Lord will be a day of vengeance. 
Or Ezekiel 30 verse 3, the day of the Lord is near, a day of clouds, a day of doom for the nations. There it applies to the nations. And again, some of the passages that speak of the day of the Lord apply it to Israel and apply it to judgments that already happened to Israel. Like the Babylonians or the Assyrians coming in and destroying the place. That's called the day of the Lord. That's a reference. It's kind of a code for God's judgment. But then there's also this distant aspect that has not taken place yet that God speaks of in the distant future. And it's actually this distant end of the age aspect of the day of the Lord that comes up in the New Testament. So for example, Acts 2.20. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great day of the Lord. Or 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the elements will be destroyed by fire. So the day of the Lord, if we ignore that phrase, we're going to miss the very heart and essence of Zephaniah. This brings it back to chapter 2. Chapter 2 now offers a grace-filled reminder. Here the sun starts to break through of those who will seek God. And here you have what you see so often in the prophets in the midst of the gloom and the doom and the judgments. You start having these rays of God's hope and grace and love show through to those who will listen. So you get to verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. And you have this beautiful imagery. It starts with a very ominous language, but then a reminder of God's grace and mercy in verse three. So gather together, verse one, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect. And that day passes like windblown chaff before the Lord's fierce anger comes on you. Remember, this is God's word to us today. Before the day of the Lord's wrath comes on you. But then, ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, notice verse three. You have one of these beautiful verses where God's mercy and grace break through. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you will be sheltered. That's code for you will be sheltered if that's what you do on the day of the Lord's anger. Those who seek righteousness, who seek God while there's time, God says, I will hear their cry from heaven, and I will shelter them. And these kinds of promises come up over and over again in the prophets. That's the judgment against Jerusalem. That's the judgment laid out. And then there's that promise that comes out in verses 1 to 3. Then the rest of chapter 2 is judgment against the nations. And then in chapter 3, the first eight verses, more judgment on Jerusalem. So the rest of the chapter two, starting, if you look at verse four, interesting word that starts out verse four in the NIV, Gaza, you got several, uh, and Ashkelon is mentioned here, two areas right now that are certainly on the, uh, on the front page of the news. The rest of chapter two is filled with warning language of judgment on the nations around Jerusalem. And it's a reminder, a day of judges, a day of judgment is coming on the whole earth here on the nations right around them. So verses eight through 10, if you drop down. First, it's announced judgment on Gaza and Philistia and Ashkelon. These were Philistine cities. Drop down to verse 8. You have judgment talked about on Moab and Ammon. I have heard the insults of Moab. These were people right south of the Dead Sea. Descendants of Esau and some of the others. The taunts of the Ammonites who insulted my people. Who made threats 
against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom. Look at the language of verse 9. So he's not just threatening his own people. As surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, Moab will become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. A place of weeds and salt pits. By the way, the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah today are along the, uh, the Dead Sea. A place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever, the remnant of my people. So we know there's no actual physical ruins left of Sodom and Gomorrah, but we know approximately the location of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was along the southern Dead Sea there. Then in chapter 3, there's more, war- more warning language about judgment for Israel and the nations. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. More warning language about Israel and the nations. Woe to the city of oppressors. Now you've, he's back to Jerusalem here. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are warring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves. God's saying this about the leaders of his people. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. A couple ways that the priests do violence to the law. They either misteach the law or they misteach it and they don't live in accordance with it. They're disobeying it. There's sexual perversion and immorality and they're worshiping pagan gods and they are prostituting the whole concept of worship before the people. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. If you look at verse 8, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify, I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Now, probably about now you're saying, wow, this is intense. That's why I told you up front, this is some of the most fierce language. You read fierce language in Amos. You read fierce language in Nahum. The gospel message is both, the backdrop is the bad news, and then you have the good news of the evangel, and that Jesus is God's agent of reconciliation for those who believe, but it has to be said against the bad news. Now, we've noted in our series on the Minor Prophets, the same tragedy that is going on today, and that is you have those who are teachers of God's word. Today, we would call them clergy. Back then, they called them priests. But those who are entrusted to teach God's word, and what's tragic today as in ancient Israel is how many pastors, how many clergies do not talk about a day of the Lord. Do not talk about a judgment day. Do not talk about hell. They don't plead with their people. They never warn their people to flee the coming wrath. They never warn that there is a real hell. They never press the claim of Jesus that no one will see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Not just religious, not just go to church, not just have a Bible, but unless they have been spiritually converted and born again. And like the false prophets in Jeremiah's day, many pastors today want to water down the language of God's judgment. Give you a classic example, Greg Boyd. Greg Boyd's a popular pastor, popular author, popular pr- professor uh, at a church in Minneapolis, a large church. 
One of his most recent books, I've read a number of his books, one of his most recent books, he argues that all of the Old Testament, this is very common, hear this, he argues that the Old Testament prophets in particular, in all their language of God's wrath and judgment, reflects their faulty theology and their own cranky inventions and don't reflect the truth of who God really is. In essence, Isaiah was wrong. Jeremiah was wrong. Amos was wrong. Zephaniah's wrong. And he said, when you read Jeremiah, when you read Isaiah, when you read Zephaniah or Amos or Nahum, they are misrepresenting God. And he accuses them of misrepresenting God. Uh, just for so, and, he, and he accuses them of inventing this angry deity. Now, just for some perspective, let's put on our, young people especially, put on your thinking cap for a minute here. Just for some perspective. A number of years ago, R.C. Sproul wrote a book. It's not one of his more popular selling books, but it was a very interesting, it was one of the very first books my dad bought by R.C. Sproul called The Psychology of Atheism. And in it, R.C. Sproul explored the psychology of Nietzsche and Freud and Karl Marx and Ludwig Feuerbach and others who were these prominent atheists and said, what could be some of the psychology of atheism? Here, here's the background. In 1927, Sigmund Freud, most of us have heard of, wrote a very prominent book called The Future of an Illusion, I-L-L-U-S-I-O-N. And he argued in that book a very common argument that has become very popular on the street and in the university today. And the argument is called wish projection. Now, you may have heard of it by a different name, but you'll recognize it. Here it is. Sigmund Freud argued, especially in chapter 6. I was checking it out again this morning, just to double check. In chapter 6, he argues that, that God is nothing more than human beings who feel lost and fragile on this planet, projecting their wishes into the sky for a big daddy that will take care of them. You heard that before? That's a very common argument. Very common on the streets, very common in the university, in the academy. You hear this all over the place. Richard Dawkins has argued basically the same thing in his best-selling book, The God Delusion. That's an interesting book to read. And he argues basically the same thing, this whole theory of wish projection. Goes back to someone like Ludwig Feuerbach, the German theologian, in his book, The Essence of Christianity. And he said that all theology is just anthropology, meaning it's just us projecting our wishes in the sky for a deity who will love and coddle us and take care of us. Now, here's the whole problem with the wish projection theory and the whole concept of just hoping to uh, find this happy, loving deity in the sky. That may explain, wish projection may explain the harmless God of mysticism or pantheism. But it could never explain, here's my point, the complex personal God of the Bible. A God who passionately loves and elects his people, but then turns around and issues thundering rebukes at them on a regular basis. Who in his right mind, and that's where Sproul's book is so insightful, who in the right mind would invent a God who passionately loves like the God of the Bible, but then constantly rebukes his people verbally and threatens their annihilation? I've talked to a lot of Hindus, and even Hindus who fear their gods, and they do, don't receive constant verbal 
reprimands from their guns, like we see in the Bible. So here's my conclusion. Hear this. This is very important. While Freud or Feuerbach or Dawkins or others like them claim that we just project our wishes for a big happy daddy in the sky to protect us, atheists have their own motivations to project atheism into the sky to avoid moral accountability. And that is something we need to remember. Thomas Nagel, who is a prominent atheist, at least had the courage several years ago in a book I read by him to say, he said, look it, I'll be honest, I hate authority and I hate cosmic authority. And one of the reasons I'm glad to be an atheist is I don't want there to be a God in heaven telling me what his standard is and that he will hold me accountable to it. That's a lot more honest reason for atheism than anything else. And so just something to remember when an atheist says, oh, you're just projecting your wishes for a big daddy in the sky to take care of you. Atheists have their own reasons for projecting atheism into the sky to get rid of a God who will judge them. Very important concept to remember. This brings us now to the great hope-filled part of Zephaniah chapter 9, I mean chapter 3 verse 9 through 20. So starting in chapter 3 verse 9, we come to the hope-filled section of Zephaniah. And this section, ladies and gentlemen, this explodes with encouragement here. It's almost like a complete reversal of what's been going on. He now tells us that this very same God who's angry at sin and rebellion at the human race is also filled with mercy and with love and grace and compassion. The language in this section is, it's powerful language. It is very moving language. And it's filled with images of God's love. And so we see two things here. Salvation, first of all, for the nations, verses 9 and 10. And then we see salvation for Israel, verses 11 to 20. So let me break those down. First of all, verses 9 and 10, salvation for the nations. And here we see God's missionary heart for the nations. This has come out again in the other prophets and coming out once more here. Verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9. Salvation for the nations. Then I will purify the lips... Let's pay attention here to the language. I will purify the lips of the peoples. And the Bible talks about peoples. It's talking about nations, other ethnic groups, not just the Hebrews. That all of them may call on the name of the Lord. So God's going to do something here that draws his own from among the nations and serve him shoulder to shoulder. And then even more surprisingly, he tells us where some of these people are going to come from. From beyond the rivers of Cush. Cush is probably in northern Africa, in the Nile region, probably today Ethiopia or part of Sudan. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. We see this kind of language in Isaiah. We see it in other prophets where God says, not just the Hebrews, I have elect, I have chosen among all the different peoples and they will come to saving faith. Now, some of us, if you've been around the church for a while and you know your Bible, you've heard of the Great Commission. The Great Commission at the end of the Gospels is when Jesus gathered his disciples right before he went to heaven. And he said, look it, you're going to take the Gospel and go to Pantata Ethne, all nations, all ethnic groups. Take the Gospel out to all peoples, right? We call that the Great Commission. A lot of people look at it as kind of some kind of add-on that Jesus was uh, kind of going through this list and like, oh yeah, yeah, don't forget, take the Gospel to all peoples and then goes to heaven. 
Here's the truth. The Great Commission didn't begin in the Gospels. Jesus did not invent the Great Commission. Jesus was restating the Great Commission. So where is it found? It starts in Genesis. There's the first glimmer in Genesis 3, but then the Great Commission really for the first time is announced in Genesis 12 when God said to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Why? Because the Savior would come through him. And when God promised a Savior through Abraham to all peoples, he was showing us he is a God of the Jew and the Gentile. And so in verses, eight and nine, I mean, in verses 9 and 10, we see the reminder of God's missionary heart for all peoples, all ethnic groups, all nations. In fact, the first glimmer is in chapter 2, verse 11. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 11, Yahweh will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the earth. Notice the next two phrases. Distant nations will bow down to him. These are not the Jews. He's saying other people groups, other ethnicities that you've not heard of. Some of these are Israel's enemies. Many of them are. They will too have some who come and bow down, all of them in their own lands. The gospel is for all nations. And then if you look back to verses 9 and 10, again, especially verse 10, from beyond rivers of Cush, my worshipers will come, my scattered people, and bring me offerings. So God promises salvation will come to the nations. Again, verse 10, Cush likely Ethiopia or Sudan. But the Gentiles will do much more than just call on the name of the Lord. Notice, let's drill down here. Verse 9. Look at what verse 9 says. They will serve as one people. NIV says shoulder to shoulder. Some translations say with one accord. So there's this unity, this solidarity. Then notice the language in verse 9. Pure speech or that's the ESV. The ESV or the NIV says purify their lips. So when you put that together, this coming to shoulder to shoulder in one accord and then a pure language. A number of Old Testament scholars I looked at this week believe pretty strongly that the reference here in unity of service and pure speech is a, is a reference to Genesis 11 and a reversal of God's curse at Babel when he divided all the peoples and divided the languages. And I think you might have something there going on. And the whole point of verses 9 and 10 is here is the great commission once again, God's missionary heart for all peoples and his promise the gospel will go far beyond just his own chosen people. But then the whole chapter and the book ends with a promise of salvation for Israel very timely in light of what's going on right now in the nation of Israel and the Palestinian territories. Verses 11 to 20, Zephaniah says that when the terrible day of the Lord is over, Israel will be renewed as a people. And it's very interesting that before 1948, when Israel became a nation again, <clears throat> by the way, it was Harry Truman that pushed for that so hard, even against his own advisors. And said, no, this is what needs to be done. And he saw the remnants of this in the scriptures. I don't know where Harry Truman was spiritually, but he was very adamant. 
in connecting the dots between the Bible and seeing Israel coming together that he pushed and was very significant in Israel being recognized again as a nation. The beginning of this took place in 1940. Now Israel at this point is still very secular as a people, but at least they've come together and the remnants are there that they may believe and repent. And so you have that emphasized. So you look at verses 11 and 12. We're told here that the Jews will look by faith upon Jesus Messiah one day and repent and believe. That doesn't mean every single Jew, but it does mean there'll be a mass turning, according to Romans 11, of the Jewish people at some point. On that day, you Jerusalem will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you've done to me because I will remove from you the arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong and they will tell no lies. Obviously, that day has not yet arrived. But here's a promise that one day the Jews will turn in mass to Jesus in saving faith. That's a huge promise. And then comes more affirmation for the salvation of Israel in a beautiful verse 17. In fact, if there's a favorite verse in Zephaniah, it's probably verse 17. And it has a lot of close parallels with John 3.16, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you. He is speaking to his people, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with what? Singing. This depicts the Lord as a loving mother singing over her children finding joy in their presence. In other words, our God is a singing God. God the Father sings to the Jewish remnant entering the kingdom. And then you come to the last verse of the book. And at that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Wow, this book ends on an incredible mountaintop of God's offer of salvation to the nations and to his people and even the promise. It's not just an offer here. There's the promise salvation will come to some of the nations and will come to some of the Hebrew people who at that point are rejecting him. All right, number of summons coming from the book. I want to look at three. A warning a promise, and a challenge. So what's the warning? Well, the warning's pretty obvious. And I would be an absolutely irresponsible pastor if I didn't announce the warning here. And the warning is there's a future day of judgment coming on the earth for me, for you, for the Pope, for Mother Teresa, for anybody. There's a future day of judgment coming on the earth. And again, one of the sad realities is how many sit in churches, maybe even today, hear this, and just discount it and think, I'm fine. I don't need to pay that much attention. Just like the people in Colombia in 1985, right before the volcano blew. Hebrews 9, friends, said there is a day appointed of judgment for all. There's a day of death appointed and a day of judgment appointed. And the Bible says this, that our greatest need, your greatest need is to be reconciled to God. Jesus said, I didn't say this. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And it's amazing how many people, even in Bible teaching churches, cringe at that. Oh, it's so intolerant, they say. I look at them and say, yeah, but at least there's a way back to the Father. And that in itself shows how much love there is in him. So that's the warning. Secondly, there's a promise in the book of Zephaniah. In spite of all the strong language of judgment, and there's some really strong language here, there is this promise that comes shining through that God will not totally destroy, especially those who seek refuge in him. In other words, the promise of Zephaniah is the same promise of the book of Romans, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 9, if you're not sure you know Christ, if you don't know for sure you're born again, if you're not sure you're reconciled to God, if you're not quite sure you're forgiven, hear Romans 10, 9. It could not be any clearer. The gospel of Zephaniah links right up with the gospel of Romans. And it says this, Romans 10, 9. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You will, what? Be saved. (laughs) Amen. Out of the mouth of babe. Yes you will be saved. I don't know how to make it any clearer. I don't know how to make it any clearer. Do you know Christ? There's the great promise that all who seek Jesus, Messiah Jesus, will be delivered from the coming wrath. And then language, lastly, there's a challenge in the language here. And the challenge comes to those of us who are truly saved. So if you're truly born again and know Christ as Savior and own him and profess him, here's the challenge. Who are you currently warning about the coming judgment? So much of Western evangelical evangelism has turned into crafting our testimony. Now, there's nothing wrong with sharing our salvation story, but our salvation story is not the evangel. It may be our story of how we applied the gospel or found the gospel, But first and foremost, evangelism is sharing the evangel, the gospel. And the gospel of a God who created and then the fall and the fact that we are sinners and in rebellion against God and need a savior and a God who sent his son to die an atoning sacrifice, lived a righteous life, then died, resurrected and ascended to heaven. That's the gospel. And that's the gospel that needs to be shared. And so I ask you, if you claim to know Christ, who are you sharing the gospel with? Who's the last person you shared the gospel with? Who are you warning? It begins with our kids. That's why I said it's so important. You should have your children and your teenagers in the worship service. They need to be sitting under the preaching of the word, but then it extends to our grandkids and neighbors and colleagues and people at school. Who's the last person you shared the evangel with and even shared there is a judgment day coming. That is the book of Zephaniah. And it is why it is such a gift to us because as we often say, warning is what? An act of love. And God wants you to know he loves you, but there is a day of reckoning. And are you ready to meet him? That is the book of Zephaniah. Father, we thank you that you have chosen to put this book in the canon of Scripture. And we thank you that you inspired this ancient prophet, Zephaniah, 
and his message to seek you while there's time. Father, I know there are many here today who know Christ is Lord, but I know there's probably a number here today who do not. And may they hear the call to seek you while there's time and turn their life over to you and be born again before it's too late. May we be a church joining other faithful churches in our area that proclaim both the bad news and the good news. That there is a day of the Lord coming and here is how to be saved and have eternal life. We thank you for telling us the truth and giving us accurate information about who you are and who we are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.